Hello and welcome to the inaugural Presto Classical Podcast. My name is Paul Thomas from Presto Music and this week I'm delighted to welcome a man as our guest whose voice will be familiar to those in the UK from Classic FM and whose words will be familiar to those across the world from Gramophone Magazine, Rob Cowan. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you very much for asking me. Much like your favourite classical concerto, our show today will comprise three movements. For our opening allegro, caught our ear, we will discuss new releases that have recently made Rob and I sit up and listen, featuring a mammoth John Barbarolli retrospective from Warner Classics, a new setting of the letters of Anne Frank from the American composer-conductor Michael Tilson Thomas, and finally, in his anniversary year, we'll be comparing and contrasting Hermann Scherken's idiosyncratic approach to Beethoven's Nine Symphonies to a brand new cycle from the Malmö Symphony Orchestra and Robert Trevino. Following that, in Confessions of a Bartok Salesman, Rob Cowan will reminisce about his slightly unorthodox route into the world of classical recordings. And finally, we'll explore the nature of modern orchestral performance as Rob shares with us an archive interview with the Finnish conductor and composer Leif Sagerstam. But we begin with Barbarolli. In 1943, Barbarolli, then conducting in New York, received a distress call from the Halley Orchestra of Manchester. Risking U-boat's attack on his Atlantic convoy, he arrived in Manchester to find an orchestra on the verge of collapse. In the following years, however, he would transform and rejuvenate them into one of the finest orchestral ensembles in Britain, as well as making a colossal contribution to British musical life in general, and assisting in the transformation of Manchester from a city of dark titanic mills, famously depicted in Lowry's Matchstick Men, to one of the UK's cultural hubs. So Rob, where are we going to start with this 109 CD set of his complete Warner recordings? Well, I started, I've actually written it up for Gramophone, that um, article should be coming out in the August issue. I started with a feature CD with John Tolansky, who interviewed various people uh, who had worked with Barbarolli, and there's an interview with Barbarolli himself. Also a presentation of the Royal Philharmonic Society Award by Vaughan Williams, which is incredibly moving. Of course, Vaughan Williams called Barbarolli Glorious John. So I started with that disc, and, you know, Barbarolli is very special to me. I didn't actually see him conduct, but when I was working at the BBC for the first time in the 1960s, I did actually see him rehearse. I had to go round the... I was working for the proms office and I had to go round the Albert Hall putting leaflets on each one of the chairs, which was a great opportunity to watch Barbarolli rehearse Sibelius's Fifth Symphony, which he did painstakingly, everybody responding to him uh, with great dedication. So that was my introduction to him as a live musician. But a number of his recordings mean a lot to me because I got to know them at key points in my own biography, if you like. And uh, the Elgar Second Symphony, the second stereo recording, which uh, John Tolansky plays as part of the interview, as soon as I heard this, I thought, this is unbelievable. This is so beautiful. It's broad, it's introspective, it's sensitive. It's got plenty of gusto where needed as well. And um, I then played the mono, there's a mono version, of the second symphony as well which is more bracing faster uh, quite different in a way certainly in the third and fourth movements and i thought hold on wait a minute uh, i was playing other things in the set there's so much to talk about with the set but there's not one Barbarolli, there are lots of Barbarollis and they're all very different. You know, he recorded pre-war with the London Philharmonic 
in the 1930s and 1920s and uh, there are plenty of those recordings well all of them actually for the Warner stable included in the set including uh, Misha Elman and Yasha Heifetz doing the Tchaikovsky violin concerto. That's particularly fascinating. Elman in 1929, Heifetz in 1937. And the interesting thing is Elman is rhapsodizes. It's such a free performance. The tone is absolutely glorious. And uh, the Bachy major concerto, they do that as well. Heifetz, on the other hand, disciplined, virtuoso, bright, bright, intense sound. And Barbarolli followed both of these artists um, absolutely perfectly, as he did various pianists and Mozart and Chopin and uh, other and singers. Loads of great singers are in are involved in this set, not just Dame Janet Baker and uh, the people who were singing in the Verdi and Puccini operas, but uh, just, just, just wonderful. So I think the place to start is Elgar. Obviously. Now, there are two recordings of Elgar's first symphony, one with the Philharmonia from 1962 and one from the 1950s. The Philharmonia version is rightly praised in numerous quarters as being a glorious performance, and the sound is wonderful as well, as all these late Barbaroli recordings are for Warners. But the earlier one from the 1950s with the Halle Orchestra, which of course was Barbaroli's own orchestra, has a sort of singing quality to it, a deeply emotional quality, especially the uh, finale where the music slows down and you get those up harp arpeggios and the strings sing over them and you get a, a touch of portamento, which is something that Barbaroli uh, always encouraged. He didn't mind portamento, the slides on the strings. And I think that particular recording of that particular passage... I don't think it's ever been mentioned. That was uh, Elgar's First Symphony with the Halle Orchestra, conducted by John Barbaroli. For my selection from this set, I've picked an excerpt from his Sibelius. And I often find there's a tendency for conductors to add a glossy coat of paint to this music. But what's so impressed me about Barbaroli's Sibelius is the craggy, natural approach to these symphonies. Many of the original LP covers uh, are recreated here in this set. And uh, for the Sibelius ones, they often feature stark pictures of Finnish landscapes. And I feel that's exactly what you get here, with a particular highlight being the beautiful desolation of the fourth symphony.
So that was the third movement of Sibelius's fourth symphony with the Halley Orchestra again, conducted by John Barbarali. Rob, what do you make of that? Well, I think you put it uh, brilliantly when you talked about craggy, a craggy sound, and that's what that is. This is what's wonderful about this late cycle with Barbarali. It's hot on atmosphere and on vividness. You know, you get you get the landscape, you get Finland. When I was talking to Zegerstam, uh, you mentioned that uh, interview. That was in Finland, and we had a meeting it, right in the forest where everywhere you saw signs saying, beware of the bears. It was a little bit scary, but um, he was great. And I spoke also, just if I can just make this point, because I think it's quite telling. Uh, I spoke, was speaking to Rautavara at that time as well. A competition had been launched in all, in honour of Rautavara, just as Rautavara had won a Sibelius competition. I said, what was he like? What was it like meeting Sibelius? And he said, well, he just stood there being Sibelius. <laughs> a very statuesque. And you can well imagine it. He was really playing on his image. Uh, but uh, I love these symphonies, especially number four. You've chosen one of my absolute favourites and number seven. In fact, and I'm going to stick my neck out here. I know people are going to disagree with me. Uh, I think the seventh of Sibelius is the greatest symphony written in the 20th century. How much did the popularity of Sibelius in the UK do you put down to Barbarolli's advocacy of his music? Well, I think it was initially the LP recordings of Anthony Collins with the London Symphony Orchestra for Decca. They had a big impact, but Barbarolli always flew a flag for, for Sibelius. And he had a knack of getting this music across because he could bring the depth of sound, and you could certainly hear it there, also marvellously engineered recording, the brass and lower strings particularly come over with such vividness, and that's very important in that of all the Sibelius symphonies. But, um, yes... Uh, he was so compelling. He recorded number five and number one uh, previously and number seven. And uh, this cycle, I think, made a, made a very, very big impression when it came out in the 1960s. And we'll be returning to Sibelius later in the show as part of Rob Cowan's with an interview with one of today's leading Sibelius interpreters, Leif Sagerstam. Although primarily associated post-war with the Halley, Barbara Rolly recorded a large output of pre-war 78s. Rob, what have you picked as the highlight of this era? It was so difficult to choose anything because there are all the concertos, there are um, plenty of vocal items. And the one I've chosen is one that made an enormous impression on me, must have been about 40 years ago, uh, when an LP came out of Walter Widdop, the Yorkshire tenor. And uh, he made a recording of music from Judas Maccabeus by Handel, the aria, Sound and Alarm. Well, as heroic singing goes, you won't get anything more stirring than this. It's stunning singing technically and as far as the spirit of the music is concerned. So I think this is a pretty good choice and absolutely on the ball. Barbarolli, very incisive accompaniment, very exciting. Your silver trumpet sound, your trumpet sound, your trumpet sound. And call the brave and only brave, and call the brave and only brave, and only brave around. Call the brave, call the brave. 
uh, finally for this Barbaroli box set, although Barbaroli was lauded for his abilities as an accompanist when he was in New York, this was possibly a bit of damning with faint praise. Of course, he was a very fine accompanist working with, in this box set, such artists such as Alfred Cortot and, as Rob has already mentioned, uh, Misha Elman and Yasha Heifetz. But perhaps his most enduring partnership was with Dame Janet Baker. So I can think of no better way of concluding our overview of this set than with this collaboration here in Mahler's Ummittenacht from his Rukut leader. Well, the thing about that is that not only does Dame Janet have a unique way with that particular song, with the whole of the Rookett leader, uh, in fact, but the way Barbaroli follows her and paints the music and paints the word, that words, they're, they're both attending to the meaning of the text, which is which is wonderful. It's the sort of thing that you got with Flagstor and Furtwängler in Tristan and Isolde, the same sort of thing. Um, you know, uh, Janet Baker, I wouldn't count her as one of my five favourite singers, but she is a great artist, and that is great artistry. No question about it at all. So that's the complete Warner recordings of John Barbaroli, and that's on 109 CDs with original jacket covers, an introductory essay from Raymond Holden, and two CDs, a bonus rehearsal and interviews, and that's available now. Barbaroli, of course, was a keen arranger of music, but our next conductor has gone a step further. Rob, what has struck you about this new release from the San Francisco Symphony and Michael Tilson Thomas? Well, it's basically Tilson Thomas's own music. Um, a newish piece, which is the settings of Rilke poems. I'm a great fan of Rilke in translation. And these are extremely beautiful. But the thing I think, that, the piece that I think will appeal to most people is from the diary of Anne Frank, which is for reciter and orchestra. Now, this is unusual in a number of respects. Uh, you know, the pieces of Tilson Thomas I've heard in the past, I've liked, but I wasn't expecting this work to have quite the impact it did. And one of the reasons, I think, is the way he begins it, because you think, Diary of Anne Frank, it's going to start in the shadows, but it doesn't. It starts uh, with jaunty, jolly music, rather in the manner of Bernstein or Copeland, a young girl, extrovert, going out, running into the fields, bright, sunny music, and it follows the diary and uh, what she writes to her imaginary friend Kitty throughout the piece. Some of the music is deeply introspective, but not overtly so. There's nothing sentimental about this piece. And um, even at its darkest moments, one of the works that it most reminded me of, although stylistically couldn't be more different, is Different Trains by Steve Reich, simply because there's a similar darkness to light, or in this case, light to darkness to light aspect to the work. 
And, it, you know, if you don't know the diary of Anne Frank and you listen to this work, apart from promoting Tilson Thomas's skill as a conductor, I think you'd want to go out and get the diary because there are so many wonderful quotes and wonderful words that it's been beautifully chosen by Tilson Thomas. And, you know, he is such a great orchestral trainer. He gets the uh, San Francisco Orchestra to play superbly. The instrumental solos are great. It's narrated by Isabel Leonard, who does a wonderful job. It was originally Audrey Hepburn who narrated it uh, when the work was first put on. But I, I would recommend it. And another great thing about it is if you're introducing young people to concert music, it's the ideal work to use because it's a story with a soundtrack, which is just what I think just what uh, kids need. Uh, to get into music and have hooks to hang the, hang the music on, and which is what this does. An excellent extract to play would be I Want to Go On Living. That's, that's very moving and I think fairly typical of the piece. I want to go on living even after my death. And I am grateful to God for giving me this gift of writing, of expressing all that is in me. I can shake off everything when I write. My sorrows disappear. So that was uh, The Diary of Anne Frank from Michael Tilson Thomas, uh, performed by the San Francisco Symphony and conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Rob. I was very impressed with this. It reminded me of a couple of pieces. Uh, firstly, Aaron Copeland's uh, Lincoln Portrait and uh, Schoenberg's, obviously, the thematically is possibly similar to uh, Schoenberg's uh, Survivor in Warsaw as well. I was very impressed by the fact that he resisted the urge to actually set the... Uh, text of the Diary of Anne Frank to music itself and have the narration instead. I think often uh, composers fall into a trap of feeling they have to set these really great texts uh, to music and often you lead to the situation where you sort of diminuate both of them um, at the same time. And also I was incredibly impressed by how this piece is not maudlin in any way. It's just full of hope all the way through and fundamentally the triumph of the human spirit. I completely agree with you. You know, uh, Theodore Adorno once said there can be no poetry after Auschwitz, and you can understand why he said it. But in a way, Tilson Thomas had sidestepped that issue by, as you quite rightly point out, not making songs out of the diary, but making words, taking the words from the diary and putting music underneath it so you have a soundtrack to it. Very, very ingenious. And I was re reminded of Dover Beach by Samuel Barber and... Um, what was Barber's other work? Knoxville. And Knoxville uh, by Samuel Barber as well. This is, again, a wonderful um, use of poetry with, with music. And Tilson Thomas is very much in that tradition.
Talk of the triumph of the human spirit leads us inexorably, of course, to Beethoven in his anniversary year, and in particular two sets of symphonies that have appeared recently. Firstly, a reissue of a set from the esoteric Hermann Schurken, a man who conducted everything from William Byrd to Luigi Nonno, and secondly, a new cycle from Sweden, the Malmo Symphony Orchestra and Robert Trevino. Rob, what's so remarkable about this Schurken cycle? Well, first of all, it treads both sides of the interpretative divide, as far as modern listeners are concerned. Very unexpectedly, uh, the stereo recordings of the Eroica and the um, Partial Symphony and the mono recordings of them, they're both sets of recordings with the Vienna State Opera Orchestra. And just to explain... What is the Vienna State Opera Orchestra? Well, <laughs> they're supposed to be taken from the Vienna Philharmonic. Um, I'm not sure that all of them in this particular case were uh, came from the Philharmonic because when you hear them on Carianne recordings or the great opera recordings, they sound like the Vienna Philharmonic. Under Hermann Scherchen, they don't really sound like the Vienna Philharmonic. Sometimes they do. The early recordings do. But... Um, particularly interesting if I tell you that in the case of the uh, Eroica Symphony the timings for the first movement between the old version and the new version are virtually identical but there's one big difference and this will give you an idea uh, of the difference in tempo the older version doesn't include the exposition repeat the newer version does. So you have all that extra music in the newer version, which adds up to no extra timing at all. That's how much faster the later performance is, which is virtually up to the metronome marking of Beethoven, which, of course, is so popularly observed today. The other performances in the cycle, they're gruff, they're strong, they're weighty, they're Beethovenian in the old-fashioned sense of the term. And I don't mean that as a, as a derogatory comment, because I love old-fashioned Beethoven, or certainly some of the performances. And it's got Wellington's Victory in the set as well, and a most original reading of the Grossa Fuga played, um, recorded over here in England. So it's an interesting, you know, everything Scherchen did was interesting, and uh, comparing these two versions of those two symphonies is especially interesting because he obviously had a, a profound change of heart between making those two recordings. Yes, I think if I was to characterise Scherchen's approach, you might say it's sometimes right, it's sometimes wrong, but it's never dull. That's right. That's absolutely the case with him. He challenges your preconceptions. That's that's the important thing. And that's what all great musicians should do. You know, you go in there thinking a piece should sound uh, one way and it actually turns out that another way is just as effective, if not more effective. And that's very much the art of Hermann Scherchen. And what particular example have you got uh, to play? Well, I think the Eroica would be a great place. So play the uh, exposition of the Eroica, first of all in the mono version, which is the traditional performance, and then in the stereo version, which throws us straight away into HIP and uh, in, uh, and into the modern ways. And you're talking about, I think it's 1960, this was way, so it's really prophetic, uh, very exciting. I'm not sure which one I prefer. I actually rather like the traditional one as well. But they show you that the man had the ability and the courage to change his mind. OK, so to begin with, this is the first version.
And to contrast, this is the second version. And just so that uh, listeners know, uh, Deutsche Grammophon have already reissued Schechen's recordings of the complete Beethoven piano concertos with uh, Paul Badura Skoda. That came out in a Badura Skoda box. So the whole run of his Beethoven performances, uh, excluding various live recordings that have been released, uh, is available now from Deutsche Grammophon. And as I said, if you if you want your ears rinsed out and uh, you want your preconceptions banished, then he's your man. Okay, great. Well, of course, new recordings of Beethoven are continuing apace in his anniversary year. Perhaps most notably recently, a new cycle of the symphonies from Robert Trevino and the Malmo Symphony Orchestra. Rob, what's impressed you about this set? Well, I got it relatively recently. Uh, I liked it. I don't like everything in it, but there were things in it that that really impressed me. The Fourth Symphony, for example, it's a tricky piece to play. And one of the trickiest passages in it is the development section of the first movement, which is very, very quiet, which looks back to the opening. It's almost, you know, the explosive uh, transition from the slow opening into the Allegra Vivace at the beginning. In the middle of the movement, when everything goes very quiet, you get a sort of reflection of that opening again. It's as if you've been next to huge pylons to begin with uh, that are very tall and very imposing and you're now in the fast lane on the motorway looking back and you can see them in the distance it has that sort of uh, effect a complete change of perspective but and this is where a lot of conductors take I think a rather strange option Beethoven doesn't mark any slowing down for this passage. Maybe just the little uh, bend in the line, but no uh, slowing down. And uh, Trevino doesn't slow down. The playing is absolutely brilliant. Uh, And uh, this is certainly something I'd want people to hear.
So that was Beethoven's Fourth Symphony, performed by the Malmo Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Robert Trevino. Listening to an interview with Robert Trevino about this cycle, and it's very clear to me he's conceived of this set as a whole. You know, it's less so much uh, Beethoven Symphony One, Two, Three, Four, etc., but it's Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, but presented as a sort of complete work in itself. And this was uh, probably evidenced by the fact that they were recorded over a very short period of time. I think uh, last year, in about uh, two or two or three weeks, and you do get a sense of this cycle that it, it's it's meant to be um, meant to be seen as the evolution of the symphonies to be understood as that process rather than sort of each symphony as an individual symphony. So it's very much rewarding to listen to these uh, as a set, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, Nicholas Arnoncourt had a similar view of the last three symphonies of Mozart. He thought they added up to a, to a single work in, in, in many respects. Um, the ninth, of course, the crowning glory of the cycle, is particularly interesting. Um, I know that Trevino absolutely adores the slow movement and he's particularly effective in that. Um, it's, it flows beautifully. The phrases dovetail beautifully. But in the ninth, what I particularly liked is in the recitative passage at the beginning, before the Ode to Joy theme comes in, he does a sort of foot Wanglerianism, uh, if I can put it that way. There's a pause. Not everybody marks a pause before that uh, theme comes in, but he does. It's not massive, uh, but it's significant enough to mark the arrival of something very special. And uh, I think it's worth hearing that passage. So that is, of course, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, again performed by the Malmo Symphony Orchestra, the MSO Chorus, and conducted by Robert Trevino. What impressed me particularly about the Ninth here is the fact that it resists the urge to turn the Ninth into the screechathon, which it often can do. The choral singing, I think, is very smaller choral forces used, and there's a real emphasis on the enunciation of the text which so often is completely lost uh, in performances, especially in large halls. But here you do get a sense of the message uh, that uh, Beethoven is trying to convey by setting this text, which is a welcome change. And of the singers, the soprano and the tenor are particularly good. I thought the tenor and the march passage before the, the fugal passage was, was marvellous, a lovely sort of bright voice. I don't know if you remember the, the Irish-American tenor Robert White, but it's a bit like him, you know, but it's a pleasure to listen to. No, I, I enjoyed it. I've been listening to loads of cycles of Beethoven symphonies, William Steinberg, Michael Geelan, Eugen Joachim, loads of others. And uh, among modern versions, I would rate this one pretty highly. Trevino is somebody with a slightly unorthodox route into classical music and conducting, and you can find out more about him and these uh, recordings in particular with an upcoming interview with my colleague Catherine Cooper. Now, someone who also had a slightly unorthodox route into classical music is Rob Cowan. <laughs> so with no further ado, 
Here are his Confessions of a Bartok Salesman, introduced by the Hungarian's Miraculous Mandarin, conducted by Antal Durati. I can tell you this. Um, up to this particular point in my my music loving uh, history or biography, my um, heroes were Lonnie Donegan, uh, the Everly Brothers, uh, Buddy Holly, and Elvis Presley. They they were the ones. Those were the forty fives. The little uh, El, the little vinyl records that I used to go out and buy, and I, I remember it clearly. We were going on a family holiday to Bournemouth. And um, just before we left, I was twiddling on the dial of the radio and I came across the music you've just heard, the chase from the Miraculous Mandarin, and it knocked me sideways. We were going away for two weeks. I had two pounds pocket money for the holiday and I immediately went and spent those two pounds on the LP, which was the Miraculous Mandarin Suite and the second suite of Bartok. Uh, another orchestral work and that was the beginning of my love of Bartok. Well I wanted to do something to, to promote his music. I needed uh, a new job. I was very young and um, I saw in the newspapers that uh, Pergamon Press owned by Robert Maxwell were advertising for a directory's clerk. So I picked up the phone and they said, OK, come in for an interview. And I went in. Uh, I remember the guy, Jim Robinson, said to me later, you look like you just come off a motorbike. You know, they didn't, <laughs> you know, they didn't know what to expect. And I said, well, I, I, basically, what I really want to do is promote these uh, Hungarian records, because at the time, Hungariton, which in those days was called Qualiton, were in the process of recording all Bartok's works. So I, I thought, well, if I can... Because Pergamon was owned by Robert Maxwell. And I thought, if I can write to Robert Maxwell and convince him that uh, it would be nice to send me around the country selling quality records, can you imagine that happening now, um, then of uh, Bartok, then, uh, then maybe I could get away with it. Maybe I could do it. Anyway, his secretary's name was Jean Badley, I remember. I used to write to her every day, because um, there was no computers in those days. You know, write a note, uh, uh, an IDC, an interdepartmental um, communication. Could I please meet with Mr. Maxwell? I've got some ideas. And I'd phone her up. And Mr. Maxwell is far too busy to see you. Please, you know, stop bothering me. And she'd go on like that. And um, anyway, I stayed late to do some work one night. And Maxwell was at the lift, standing at the lift, very imposing figure with this deep sort of mahogany voice. 
and um, I thought, well, this is my choice. I'm going to, this is my chance. I'm going to pounce. So I ran up and said, Mr. Maxwell, Mr. Maxwell, um, I've been trying to see you for ages. I've got these, this idea about Bartok and, um, uh, you know. I, don't, to... I can't imagine Robert Maxwell knew who Bartok was. Uh, well, he, he, he originated from a lad not too far from Hungary. He was Czech. He was Czech. They called him the bouncing Czech, but don't put that bit in. <laughs> um, and um, he said, come up and see me tomorrow night at seven o'clock. And we'll talk about these ideas. So there's me all bright and bushy-tailed. I came with all these papers and I was yeah, telling him all that. I walked into his, in, into his uh, uh, office and he was sitting there with his legs folded on his desk. He said, well, come on, tell me all about it. And I told him all about it. And he obviously was a bit charmed by this um, cheeky young chappy who uh, dared to suggest to him. He said, all right. He said, I'm going to I'm going to give you a chance for this. He said, I want you to go and work down for six weeks in Headington near Oxford. You can run the shop and then you can go on your travels. I didn't have a driving license at that time. And I had a driving license for many, many years. I only took 11 tests. And um, so uh, I, that's what I did. I ran the shop for a while. And eventually I uh, was allowed to go out. I went up north, went to Leeds, Huddersfield, Halifax, Sheffield, Manchester, Liverpool, all over the place with these records. Um, and, you know, I sold a few, I suppose, to the, mostly to libraries. And um, it, I suppose I did it for about a year before I jacked it in and went to the next stage of my career, which was Boozy and Hawks Music Publishers. And um, so it was a, it was an exciting one. They were a lovely bunch at, at uh, Pergamon and Maxwell. I will always, I mean, I know had a very checkered history, but he was always one to give a young person with a bit of initiative a chance. And I will always be grateful to him for that. My next, uh, my first uh, job, though, before that was for a public relations um, uh, company, which was local to where I lived. And one of their clients was the Society of Snuff Grinders, Blenders and Purveyors. Now, this was very, very interesting because I actually organised the first Norwich Snuff Month, which is quite interesting, um, which is basically posters um, uh, all over the place advertising snuff. And my boss went away and I got a phone call from the newspaper, The Scotsman. And he said, oh, I, I understand that you do the Society of Snuff Grinders, Blenders and Purveyors. And we had a poster of a young girl offering a guy a pinch of snuff, which I described as a, uh, a, young, a young girl with a bloke taking a pinch. Well, this was considered... <laughs> my, my boss phoned me the next day and said... You're, you're fired. He was a Scotsman, a Glaswegian, came from the Gorbals originally. He said, you're fired. Cohen, you're fired. And then about 10 minutes later, um, because that was printed in the Scotsman, uh, he phoned me back and reinstated me because the society were absolutely delighted. It gave them so much positive publicity. And I had 
other, a model school. I actually dated one of the models and all sorts of things. And from there, I went to Boosey and Hawkes Music Publishers, where I stayed for nearly 19 years and um, ran the education department. Then I ran uh, the advertising department and lastly, the music archive, where I stayed for 11 years. And I met some wonderful people there. And um, so from there, I did my first BBC broadcast during that time, uh, got involved with a magazine, which Matt, I'm sure you, you remember, well, Paul, you might too, called CD Review. It was a magazine, nothing to do with the BBC programme. And uh, then Classic FM started. And uh, then Roger Wright brought me into Radio 3. And now I'm back at Classic FM again. So that's a very but very much a pricey of my career during those years. Uh, and, um, yeah, I've had a ball, really. I've had great fun. And, of course, during that time, you've interviewed many uh, luminary figures from the industry, which we're going to uh, explore yes. now. And uh, who, who's, whose interview have you decided to uh, replay for us? Well, to be honest, I've got these cassettes out of the loft, and the sound isn't brilliant, but... There's some interesting people there, and I thought, well, if they're good enough for you to hear. And the one I found was one that I taped in Finland. Um, I, I interviewed two people. Um, uh, Eno Johani Rautovara was one, and uh, Leif Zegerstam, who's very, very interesting. And uh, I interviewed him. He had some interesting things to say about attitudes to orchestras, attitudes to audiences, and uh, I thought that might be worth sharing with you. Do you think sometimes that people use atmosphere or the atmosphere of Sibelius's music as a sort of veil of mist to hide behind and don't uh, allow themselves to, be, to, to articulate things as clearly as they might simply because they think that the creating atmosphere is the most important thing? I'm thinking of certain performances you hear which are maybe imprecise uh, and don't necessarily observe the dynamic markings in the music, but, but go for atmosphere before anything else. Well, since I am not uh, a doctor of uh, what has been done, I mean, uh, I have not scrutinized all, the, uh, all, all what has been done, uh, I, I cannot exactly answer to it. I would, uh, I would hope that uh, the combination would be like we always say that uh, uh, personality is good if it has heart and head, <laughs> and, and it's the same with. Uh, uh, it is. It would be fantastic if there is the clarity and then this so-called atmosphere. But uh, if I have to, <laughs> to to sacrifice the other on, on it, if I buy a record or if I go to a concert, I cannot sit in a concert uh, which is uh, perfect. And I don't mention any name of the big conductors do, doing then that with. Well, uh, with the um, uh, with the um, uh, very clear, and I don't feel a thing about it because I think uh, uh, the consumption of music is uh, somehow to enrich the the daily uh, routine, or or it is like going to any kind of estradic uh, um, auditoric performance in any field. If I go to a theater, I want to have a, an experience. I, I, when I go out, uh, uh, I, I, I want to feel that uh, when I was uh, satelliting uh, with what happened there, with those personalities, uh, 
at the utmost and with my uh, openness uh, as much as possible, then, then I feel a resonance with that happening. And that can lift me to, to uh, get visions or experiences that I couldn't have dreamt of before I went into that happening. And the same is with music. The music should, should have that uh, quality. And uh, then, of course, it is uh, the, the, the responsibility of the interpreter to interpreters to, to have such a conscience, a kind of artistic conscience that uh, uh, you don't go, on, go in front of an audience unless you have something to contribute. And uh, actually, then you should sleep in the afternoon and, and, uh, and uh, have had loading up to it. To feel, uh, and this is the way good artists... Uh, uh, it is easier with the ears. When you get older, you have done it so many times, so you know uh, not how to do it, but how to let uh, the possibilities of such uh, uh, moments uh, to to come uh, come uh, affront. Uh, you cannot do it uh, uh, deliberately. Then you close all all the the uh, cranes. What do you call them? <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the, the, the channels. Uh, but uh, if you have succeeded many uh, uh, more times than just uh, one lucky time, if you have done it many times and people have had the, the, the feedback coming to say that, uh, well, what you did was uh, just something and then they have some, uh, some uh, word for it, but uh, then uh, you don't even need the, the, the superlative word. You just feel that, uh, that something uh, where you were present and had... Uh, had um, essence to to steer things uh, and if it was rewarding to some, uh, somebody it was uh, then, then that's why why actually it is uh, so fantastic to be in this field do you listen to other interpreters yes i do yes and thinking about the people who are conducting today do you think there's a, a lack of interpretative character in a lot of what's happening in in orchestral interpreters you know i mean you're a, a very colorful conductor with a lot of personality you listen around today to other conductors do you think that sometimes people are too enslaved by the letter of the score or they're too afraid maybe to express themselves honestly well uh, i think that uh, if we try to find a reason why uh, those that i don't not have heard so many so i don't want to then i think the reason is how they live their own life score if uh, if they haven't had uh, great uh, losses, if we think of uh, the aspect of uh, how uh, how uh, uh, a great grief uh, uh, stirs in into your uh, chemical uh, human mechanisms. Uh, uh, all this, what uh, comes from from encounter with death, love, or or all, all these essential things for drama. If you haven't had them in your own life, then how could you possibly? Uh, get it uh, to come uh, every second night when you have um, Mahler 7 or something. I mean, uh, so I, I guess that uh, uh, that um, maybe the hectic uh, uh, usage of young persons by agents to put them too early to do things and so uh, doesn't give them time to, to develop uh, as, uh, as personalities maybe. And I mean those that don't then have it. But uh, then there are very young persons that can have it uh, for some reason very early that I see in students. Uh, I mean, that can come uh, suddenly there's this young that he, 
he hasn't done the whole repertoire, but somehow he loves so much a score that when he does it, we, we get stunned. What happened? Uh, this wonder of music can happen in very small things, with a, not with, even without a full orchestra, like the, the, the conducting class orchestra is less than 50, and we play a Mahler 9 first moment, and then there's this one guy who is better than the other, or then this girl in, in the opening of, of, of the Symphony Fantastique, which we had, and, uh, and uh, wonders can happen, and, and the wonders come from uh, that those that uh, give openly them to the musical situation with a now point which can be as broad as, as it, uh, it is possible because of the motivation. And so then, then in, in that thing, uh, well, as I said, wonders can happen and, and there are no limits also to... So that was uh, the Finnish conductor Leif Sagerstam there being interviewed by Rob Cowan. Now I'm interested in his comments making about the comments he made there about uh, orchestral performances and their you know too too much of the same thing and um, orchestral performances sounding the same. Now Leif Sagerstam is someone who's done some quite idiosyncratic orchestral performances. I'm thinking in particular of a Bruckner Eight that he did uh, several years ago, which was you know. Uh, almost made Celebadaka look like a speed merchant. And uh, secondly, <laughs> uh, secondly, there's a performance of Scheherazade on, uh, available to watch on YouTube in which during the last movement he instructs the orchestra to start bellowing and roaring as the, uh, sea, as the sea gets wilder and wilder. To what extent is this a gimmick and to what extent is, to the, is this uh, a valid approach of making orchestra performances unique? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think getting the orchestra to bellow and roar during the last movement of Scheherazade is just a little bit of a gimmick. Um, there's nothing to suggest that that's what should happen. I mean, Rimsky's orchestration is so vivid and so is the music itself that it doesn't really need anything more than the old Stokowskian tinkering. And I've certainly got no problems with that. Um, as to very, very slow Bruckner eights um you know there was a standing joke years ago of um Chilibadaki conducting the saber dance on a four lp set you know and the thing about his slow tempi there was always a reason behind it um uh, behind them i should say um and i can't remember there was a hungarian conductor who brought out some records of whole load of works of these incredibly slow tempi. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. So, okay, you know, it's a free world. Everybody's entitled to their interpretative opinions. Go for it. But you know, most of these sorts of really um, eccentric performances, and I say eccentric, I'm not talking about uh, people like Stokowski, who were deeply musical as well. I mean, he did a, a Petrushka in 1950, which I absolutely adore, although it is very raucous and very over the top. But um, I'm talking about things that push the boat out, uh, like Mengelberg and and sometimes Furtwängler and and some of the older conductors and some of the newer newer ones as well. So I've got nothing against it. Let him go ahead and do it, but let him take it on the chin if critics or the audiences for that matter, just as important, come back and say, no, come on, you've taken it too far this time. 
Yeah, he, he talks there as well about making sure that you know uh, conductors have a sort of a, a philosophy behind what they're doing. Is it, is it can it can this behaviour sort of be justified if 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 there's a large sort of explanation? You know, think again with Selvadaka with his you know Buddhist ideas about music. I I, I think that's very, a very very good point, and and he also makes the point uh, Zegerstam about people who have real life experiences, tragedy, maybe losing people they love or being in love themselves or, or, or having illnesses or accidents or whatever. Everything informs your attitude to the music you play. It, it, completely, it can completely revise the way you view a particular piece because of aspects of your, of your own biography. So... There are so many things that feed into the way you perform music that I think um, you don't always have to know about those things when you're listening to the performers' performances. But, you know, sometimes it helps if you know that um, this was uh, this recording was made just before such and such a person. Hans Rosbaud is a very good example. Um, there's a marvellous Brahms second that SWR have brought out in in their Brahms box with Rosbaud. Uh, and it was made, I think, just a week before he died. But what it tells you is this tremendous feeling of rejuvenation. And not that he was fading away, quite the opposite. And yet, you know, there are other interpreters where you feel there is a sense of loss, there is a sense of of declining, of, of dying away, if you like, a morendo in musical terms, and, and you sense it, you feel it in the way they perform the music. Is it, do you feel, is it, if it's pos- is it possible to tell when uh, a performer's doing something because of a natural feeling and whether they're doing it for for a gimmick you know is it is it too difficult to discern what what's what what's what a performance might exist because of a genuinely felt emotion and what or what might be happening because of a feeling that they have to do something different uh, based on just just a desire to be different that depends on your own instincts um you know when i interview people one of the questions i most frequently ask them was um if you open a page of music and you're studying it, and you're looking at it, and you're looking at the markings, dynamic markings, tempo markings, and phrase markings and all that sort of thing, and you're looking at it, you think, no, I don't think that should go quite like that. There should be more rubato there. It should be much slower than the metronome mark suggests. So there should be a crescendo there. What would you follow? Would you follow the score? Or would you follow your musical instincts? And you know, quite a few people will think, oh, no, 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 I've got to play what's on the page. You know, you, you know that they don't, you know, very often. Look at Bartok. Now, Bartok was an absolute stickler for writing onto his page metronome markings for individual phrases, tempo markings and, and, and dynamics. And yet you hear him play um, Microcosmos, and it's an incredible uh, incomplete recording of the second piano concerto with... Uh, um, I think it's Ernest Olsemey conducting uh, in terrible sound. He was as improvisatory as a jazz pianist. It's, it's like he was making it all up as he went along. And, uh, you know, he he put those markings on hold. He, you know, I think what a lot of composers do is that um, they want to guide you but not dictate. I remember a story about Brahms that... 
a young group came along and played one of his string quartets to him and, and they went to him at the end and they said what did you think um, um, uh, Maestro and uh, he said I thought that was an absolutely beautiful performance he said mind you last week another group came and played that same work to me in completely different interpretation and that was also extremely beautiful so I think it's worth bearing in mind that if you're as you suggest if you're performing a work from your heart and in a way where you really mean what you do then it can't be wrong it can only be divide opinion I don't think you can ever be wrong if you're being sincere and I think that applies to virtually everything in life when it comes to creative work uh, but if you're not if you're insincere everything is wrong well, thank you very much. And I think that's a suitable uh, life lesson to finish on, shall we say? <laughs> so I have nothing left to do but thank Rob Cowan for being my guest on this first show and to thank Matt Groom for producing. We hope you've enjoyed this first uh, Presto podcast and we hope that uh, there'll be more to come. So thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much, Paul. It's been an absolute delight talking to you.